0: The astrophys podcasts my name is brendan o'brien today is thursday the 2nd of november 2017 each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy optical astronomy space science or particle physics and this week our special guest is professor tamara davis an acclaimed cosmologist who researches the dark universe And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of AstroBlogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky, and I'll be giving our regular Astrophys News Roundup. So let's cross over to Queensland now to hear about the dark universe from Dr. Davis. Hello, Tamara. Hi, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Professor Tamara Davis from the University of Queensland. Tamara is a cosmologist who has won numerous prizes for her research, such as the Astronomical Society of Australia's Medal for the Early Career Researcher with the Highest International Impact the 2011 Australia Institute of Physics Women in Physics Lectureship, and most significantly, the Australia Academy of Sciences' Nancy Millis Medal for Outstanding Female Leadership in Science. So tell us about where you grew up as a child, please, Tamara. How dark were the skies where you lived? And tell us a little about your school days and how you became interested in science and space and what prompted you to study the sciences.
1: Oh, uh-huh, great question. I grew up in the middle of Sydney. So my skies were not dark at all at night. I did go up near the beach. So I grew up as a surf club girl on Coogee Beach. Spent a lot of my teenage years doing surf lifesaving and that kind of thing. Gymnastics, did lots of gymnastics and basically tried to get out and do as much stuff as possible. I loved studying and doing science and maths and that kind of thing at school, but my parents really encouraged me to get out and do lots of sport and all sorts of other things as well. In terms of what prompted me to study the sciences, my earliest memories of things like I remember seeing Halley's Comet and I remember the space shuttle missions, particularly the Challenger mission that unfortunately exploded after launch, and I remember being quite inspired, thought, hey, I want to be an astrophysicist. I liked science in general and I had some aptitude for maths and I also loved science fiction books and movies. I guess in my early childhood, my sort of aspirations, if I had any specific ones for the future, was I sort of wanted to be an astronaut.
0: Very good. Now, your first degree was a Bachelor in Advanced Science, Physics and Astronomy at the University of New South Wales and during that time you did a few semesters at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Can you tell us how that came about and a little about your experience in Canada?
1: Sure. When I went to university, I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I chose a science degree and a degree in physics, partly because it had the most options. I was allowed to study philosophy and that kind of thing as well. But one thing I wasn't allowed to study was languages, and so I ended up picking up an arts degree as well so I could uh, do the language side of things. So I studied Indonesian and French as well at university. And ended up with an arts degree in philosophy but along the way I had plenty of time to explore other things and there was the opportunity to do exchange programs so the exchange program that appealed to me most was going to Canada partly because my family's there my mum's from Vancouver and so I had grandparents and aunts and uncles which I got to spend some time with by going and going to university in the same city as them so that was really cool in many ways I sort of got a new lease of life and a new excitement about studying by taking this and going for a year overseas and just getting experience at different universities, realising that there are different ways that things can be done and just meeting a whole group of new people and sort of like doing that kind of thing is a chance to reinvent yourself in a way and I thoroughly enjoyed going over and starting afresh in a different country and seeing how things could go. Yeah, it was quite funny. I didn't actually do particularly well in my first couple of years of university. So, turning point was when I went to Canada and found that extra lease of life and really enjoyed it.
0: What a rich experience. So, back at the University of New South Wales, you were awarded your doctorate in astrophysics for your study of fundamental aspects of the expansion of the universe and cosmic horizons. And for our audience, can you describe how we know our universe is expanding? And that this expansion is accelerating.
1: Yeah, so University of New South Wales was great. You had lots of opportunities during undergrad to do little research projects and things, even from first year. So I had a great experience there. And my honours project was asking the question, can galaxies recede faster than the speed of light? It was sort of funny because at the time it was actually something that should have been known about. It was known about for ages and ages, um, since basically since um, general relativity was known about. Some of the knowledge had sort of fallen out of use, really, and there were things popping up in the literature that said the galaxies can't recede faster than the speed of light. And it was only because our observations had just got to the point where it had become relevant. And getting ahead of myself here. Because you asked about how we know that the universe is expanding. Yep. The expansion was discovered by a group of people led by Hubble who showed evidence in 1929 that all of the galaxies were moving away from us. And there was something really curious. The galaxies that were further away were moving faster. Yep. And the velocity that they were moving away with was proportional to their distance. Now that's what you would expect if everything had started from a big bang or everything was sort of emerging from the same place because you know if you if you just started from everything in the in the same position and let everything go then the distance that something ended up at is going to be further if it's moving faster. Yep. And so this velocity proportional to distance thing was discovered in about 1929. It was discovered by the fact that we were able to measure the distances to galaxies precisely for the first time ever and it was quite surprising because people back then and it's not that long ago less than 100 years ago people did not realize these spirals that they could see in the sky they were called spiral nebulae yep. there was a big debate about whether they were clouds of dust and gas nearest or whether they were entire galaxies of their own further away and it was only when we were finally able to accurately measure their distances using a particular type of variable star that we realized that their whole galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars way far away much further away than if they'd been a cloud of gas in our own galaxy yep. so that was really interesting and but ever since the discovery that the expansion was existed the question was how is the universe going to end So the discovery of the expansion was essentially the discovery that there was a beginning to the universe, and the question was automatically: How is it going to end? And the big question was this: If I was to throw something up from the surface of the Earth, then if I throw it up at eleven kilometers per second, it's going to escape the surface of the Earth. It has the escape velocity. The gravity of that from Earth is not sufficient to slow it down enough to make it stop and fall back to Earth. So. Question was, do the galaxies have the escape velocity from each other? They're pulling on each other and they should be slowing each other down. But are they pulling on each other enough to slow each other down enough so that the whole universe stops expanding and starts to recollapse? So this was the big question. And it wasn't until the 1990s that we we're actually able to answer it. And it was answered by being able to ha- find an even more accurate standard candle. By standard candle, I mean a distance indicator. There's a particular type of supernova that always explodes to approximately the same brightness. Yep. So just by measuring how bright they appear, you can tell how far they are away. And this type of supernova was used to map the velocities of galaxies out and measure their velocity compared to their distance out to really huge distances. And we were able to measure that the expansion of the universe is doing something really strange. It's not actually slowing down at all. It's actually speeding up. So gravity appears to be working in reverse, and that's really as bizarre as me taking this pen and throwing it up in the air and having it accelerate off into space. For some reason, gravity appears to be working in reverse, and that's the discovery of the acceleration of the universe and something that we're all trying to explain right now.
0: Fantastic. Now, you hinted at this earlier. One of the sections of your PhD deals with superluminal recession velocities. So could you explain for us how some of those galaxies appear to be moving away from us faster than the speed of light.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is the thing that there was a lot of confusion over in the literature. So I was talking about Hubble's law before. That's that the, the velocity is proportional to the distance. Yep. If you take that to its natural conclusion, if you go far enough away, you go higher and higher velocities, and the velocities end up being faster than the speed of light. Now, people had started to say, oh, oh obviously nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So therefore, you need to apply some special relativistic corrections to make sure that the velocities don't exceed the speed of light. So special relativity was the first of Einstein's theories. That's the one where you have things like time dilation and length contraction, and you can never actually have something that moves faster than the speed of light. But it's actually inappropriate to apply that to galaxies. The entire expansion of the universe, the expansion of space, I guess, is Immune to that particular restriction because space can stretch faster than the speed of light without violating special relativity. Cool. Yeah, it's sort of cool. It's, it also effectively happens in a black hole. That's another case where it happens. You can describe a black hole as sort of a waterfall of space, I guess, falling in towards the center of the black hole. And light is traveling, trying to race against that waterfall of infalling space. And if the space is being stretched into the black hole faster than the speed of light, then the light traveling with respect to that space can't escape. And so it's not the way that we usually describe black holes, but it is an equivalent description. And that's sort of what's happening with the universe. And it has some really interesting consequences. It means that there's an event horizon to the universe as well, and a distance beyond which we will never see. That if light is traveling towards us, there's certain regions, if it's starting from far enough away, it may never be able to reach us, which means that there's galaxies out there that are beyond our sight that we will never be able to see at the present day. I have to emphasize, though, that the galaxies receding from us faster than the speed of light doesn't violate relativity. It's a natural part of general relativity, our theory of gravity. And that's because... The speed of light limit applies in an inertial frame. So it, it, at any infinitesimal point in the universe where um, you have flat space and not, no expansion, their special relativity holds. And you'll no one ever sees any light traveling at anything other than the speed of light, and no one ever sees anything overtaking a photon. Yep. Photons are still the maximum speed limit you can get traveling through space. Nothing ever overtakes a photon, and everyone always sees photons traveling at the speed of light. yes. It's just that the galaxies moving away from each other don't share an inertial frame. They they are outside of that particular restriction.
0: That's amazing, Tamara. After your PhD, you did a postdoc at the Australian National University where you got the chance to work with Nobel Prize winner Brian Smith and help design a space telescope. That must have been an amazing experience.
1: Yeah, that was great, of course. He hadn't won the Nobel Prize yet, so we didn't know that that was coming. Uh But he was one of the ones that discovered the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And the other team, so he was leading one team that discovered the acceleration. There was another team that also discovered the acceleration almost at the same time. Brian Schmidt's team published in 98 and the other team published in 99, um, only like uh, six months apart. So this other team that was led by Saul Perlmutter at um, Lawrence Berkeley Lab in the States, they had the desire to make a um, space telescope to measure this effect more precisely. And it was super exciting. So this was obviously something that people wanted to do. And they wanted to make sure that all of the expertise from both of the teams got onto the design of this space telescope. And Brian didn't have enough time to devote himself to that project. So he sort of employed me, and I was effectively being paid by the Lawrence Berkeley Lab and, and working for the Australian National University and trying to be the conduit between the two teams to make sure that all of the expertise got onto the design of the space telescope. It's, it's really cool when you think um, my experience in my PhD was actually theoretical stuff to do with black holes and and cosmological event horizons and uh, expanding universe. And that ended up getting me into the opportunity to help design a space telescope, which sounds like quite a different skill set. But when you're looking at this, these designs, the part of the design that I was doing was not sort of particularly the engineering. It was designing the specs that we needed on the telescope in order to be able to measure this acceleration of the expansion of the universe, that, so to make sure that the technical design was actually going to be able to achieve what we needed to achieve for the universe.
0: So then you left ANU to become a research fellow at the University of Copenhagen for a couple of years. Can you tell us how that came about and what you studied and learnt over in Denmark?
1: Yeah, so this was actually the first job that I really sort of cold applied for without knowing people. The job with Brian Schmidt in at ANU, I had been to a conference in Canberra and I was talking to Brian beforehand and we'd sort of he made sort of made up a job for me. And <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was quite a funny experience, actually, because I must have been quite engaged in the conference. I was asking lots of questions, and so Brian asked me, what, so what are you doing after this was at the barbecue at the end of the conference? He's like, so what are you doing when you finish your PhD? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I really should. I know I'm supposed to like go overseas and do postdocs and get experience elsewhere, but I've got this constraint because I play this obscure sport called Ultimate Frisbee <laughs> and World Championships is next year, and I'm helping Vice Captain Australia, so I actually have to stay in Australia for a year to train. And Brian was like, "Oh, really? I think I've got something for you." And so he sort of made up that job for me. That ended up being a fantastic experience on many counts. Quite apart from the fact that I ended up getting to work with all of the Nobel Prize winners that would later win the Nobel Prize in 2011. Going to Denmark, applied for this job out of the blue. It was just one of the ones that was advertised. It looked like a really good opportunity. And there was a they'd just started a new center called the Dark Cosmology Center. That was just starting up. And the purpose of that was to try and understand the dark side of the universe, so dark matter and dark energy and dust. When I was trying to decide, I sort of there was opportunities in the states, um, but I'd sort of already worked with people in the states, and it was time to go overseas. And Denmark was awesome because you could um, work in English, uh, and so it was a, the language was not a barrier. I got to go there and work with an observational team that was working um, with measuring supernovae and really nailing down this measurement of the acceleration of the universe a little bit more precisely. That was really fun because I also got to look at some of the different theories for what could possibly be causing the acceleration and wrote a paper describing some of the how those other theories behaved compared to the observations and was able to rule out some of the more popular theories that tried to explain this acceleration in different ways.
0: Fantastic. Part of our brief here at Astrophysics to encourage young people to take up careers in astrophysics, and you're doing this beautifully at the moment. Thank you, Tamara. <laughs> so then you got back to Australia and at the University of Queensland, where you started as a research fellow, then an ARC future fellow, and now you're a professor there. Tell us about your duties as a professor first, please, Tamara, and then we'll dive into the dark side and hear a little bit more about dark energy.
1: Yeah, well, I have to say that being an astrophysicist is seriously the best job in the world. I get to show up at work every day and figure out something, like get to work on something that I'm really inspired by, get to work with other people who are really excited about their jobs and um, are amazing, uh, smart, inspired people. And I get to travel around the world to do it. So I've had the chance to go work in Chile and like use the telescopes up in the Atacama Desert and that yeah. kind of thing. I've worked in Denmark, get to travel to the States. There's conferences all over the place. I've even gone to places like Mauritius and Easter Island for astrophysics. Yeah, I think being able to show up at work every day and, and study something that you really love, that you get to really direct yourself and you get to choose what you, to study what you think is most interesting in the subject is such a privilege and I am um, so thankful that I have had the opportunity to be able to do this. As a professor, you get to do a really wide, huge range of things. Obviously, you get to do some teaching. I've been teaching first year physics here at University of Queensland and that's super fun. That's a pretty big class. It's like two hundred and fifty students at once. And it's really fun working with the students. And I, I love the moments where you can get those aha moments where someone you can see that someone has just got it and you're like they're like, Oh, that's how it works. Cool. Yeah. And also those wow moments where someone's just gone, Whoa, is that possible? And and that's the kind of thing that I love when I'm teaching. But teaching makes up only a small part of what you do as a professor you get at least equal time to do research and my research I guess we'll get into research uh, exactly what I'm doing with research a a little bit later but you get to do things like you supervise PhD students you supervise honours students so people doing research projects as well as working on the research projects of your own and of course you have to do things like apply for funding the more outside funding you get, the more variety of things you can do with your research. So you might need to get funding to build a new telescope or to employ a postdoctoral fellow to help you do a research project and that kind of thing. So that's all very varied. And of course, I do a lot of um, outreach as well. So I get to invited to speak at schools and public events and on radio and podcasts and occasionally on television and things like that. I love trying to make sure that everybody gets to benefit from the fact that I'm doing research and the whole community gets to see what science is coming out, excited by that science, uh, and see what sort of practical applications come out at the end of it.
0: And your enthusiasm is infectious, Tamara. In a previous episode, we spoke with Dr. Elisabetta Barberio about the dark matter experiment that she's conducting deep in a gold mine in rural Victoria. And we've been hanging out to hear about dark energy. You've given us a primer on it. Would you like to tell us a bit more about the dark energy framework and perhaps do it in terms of the new OSDES, dark energy survey? You've just published an amazing paper on this. Mm -hmm. Can you describe this research and what we now know about dark energy that we didn't know before?
1: Yeah, so dark matter and dark energy are, uh, we believe together make up 95% of the universe. So they're a really important component of the universe. The stuff that makes up you and I, the atoms, the light, the other, everything else that we usually interact with, that makes only up only 5% of the total energy in the universe. So we're trying to understand these dark components. It's good to talk about them in contrast. So the dark matter, it clumps, it holds galaxies together. Yep. There's a few theories for what the dark energy could be. The leading candidate is that it's actually the energy of the vacuum itself. So if you take all of the matter out of a space, take all of the particles, take all of the light, um, take all of the dark matter even, you've only got vacuum there. The vacuum is not actually not entirely empty. Quantum physics tells us that there has to be little particles popping in and out of existence, these virtual particles they're called, and the properties of this not-empty vacuum are actually such that it would cause the universe to accelerate. It would have sort of an anti-gravity sort of effect. Yep. Now, despite the fact that quantum physics says that this stuff should exist, is not perfect because it also predicts how much of the stuff there should be. At least gives a hand-waving estimate. Yep. And unfortunately, it predicts way too much of it. It's one of the worst matches between a prediction and observation ever seen. So it's like 120 orders of magnitude wrong, which is a huge number. Wow. And so trying to explain why there's this massive discrepancy is one of the things that well, we need to do. That's if vacuum energy really is the explanation. Yep. It's one of the reasons why this is such an interesting area because we know at the moment we've got this theory of quantum physics which describes all of our, the world of particles really beautifully. We've got this theory of general relativity, which describes gravity really beautifully. But we know at the fundamental level that these two theories are incompatible. In quantum physics, you have to have a fixed time. like Everyone has to agree on what the time is. But we know from relativity that time is relative. It depends on your state of motion, the flow of time that you observe. So we know that we need some sort of new theory that is able to incorporate both. That's a quantum theory of gravity, which we don't have yet. But observations like this with the vacuum energy might be pointing us in the direction that we need to look to try to build this quantum theory of gravity. Because one of the difficulties with coming up with it is that we don't really have many observations that challenge us and force us to use both simultaneously, really. We're talking about things like the, the center of a black hole, the beginning of the universe, maybe Hawking radiation around an event horizon of a black hole, and maybe vacuum energy. So this might be really critical in trying to give us observational hints of how to figure out a quantum theory of gravity if we can explain what the dark energy is.
0: Wow. Tell us now about your dark energy survey and that amazing paper that you've just had published.
1: Yeah, so this was super exciting. We've got the dark energy survey has been going on. It sort of was born in 2004, but the first eight years or so of this project was designing and building a new type of camera that's now mounted on the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory 4 meter telescope in Chile. This camera is really special because it has 570 megapixels and it's, but the really cool thing is it's science grade. So it's really sensitive. Like almost all of the light lands on the detectors gets detected. And it has a field of view that's 14 times the area of the full moon, yep. which means you can really survey huge regions of the sky very efficiently. We actually just started our fifth year of observations um, with this telescope. So it it started in earnest in about 2013. And we've just released our first results from just using the first year of data. It takes a long time to analyze the data once it comes in. So the cool thing about this is we were able to detect the distribution of dark matter in the universe more precisely than had ever been done before. And we did it in a, a different way. Usually you measure things like galaxy clustering and supernovae to measure dark energy. But the way that this was detected was we had 26 million galaxies in our survey that we had seen, and we looked at the shapes of those galaxies. Now, you can't see the dark matter, but just like you sort of can't see glass, but if you have sort of a wobble, uneven glass surface and you look at light coming through that glass surface, the light from the background gets distorted And so you can tell that the glass is there by the fact that you see this distorted light from the background. Well, we're using these galaxies as the background light, and we're looking at the distortions that occur to their shapes as the light passes through the distribution of dark matter between us and them. And the reason the light gets distorted is because of gravitational lensing. Everything falls in a gravitational field, including light. So as light passes by a dense clump of dark matter, say, its path gets bent, it gets bent towards that clump of dark matter. And that means you get this lensing effect, which warps the background galaxies. And by detecting that warping, we detected the distribution of dark matter. Um, That was the really exciting part that came out in the most recent publication.
0: That is sensational. An amazing collaboration and some great teamwork there now let's refer back yeah. to
1: something actually the dark energy survey is over 400 scientists from six continents it's a huge international effort our group here in australia is taking some follow-up spectra um, to um, get more detailed information of some of the galaxies most of this this effort is done by the huge international team And it's really fun to work together with all of these people from so many different countries, all really just trying to get together to understand something super fundamental about the universe.
0: That is fantastic. Now, can I refer back to something you said early about cosmology? Let's talk now entropy and cosmological models. For those of us who are going to hang around for it, what do you see as the ultimate fate of the universe now? Is it going to be the big crunch or a long, cold whimper or something else entirely?
1: Aha, you're asking me to predict the future now. <laughs> uh, but I guess that is actually what we're able to do with physics. If you, If we really do understand the laws of physics, you can actually predict the future. I can tell you I throw a ball in the air, I can tell you exactly where it's going to land if I understand the physics correctly. So if our current understanding... Of physics is sufficiently correct then I can tell you that the universe is going to end up in a big freeze yep. so the it was going to expand forever it's going to continue to expand at an accelerating rate and we're going to get so separated from from all of the, the galaxies that we won't actually be able to see any other galaxies anymore the local group of galaxies that we're in like the small group including things like Andromeda Um, we'll actually merge into one big mega-galaxy because Andromeda is already falling towards us. We're going to collide in about 4 billion years. Apart from that sort of big mega-galaxy that's our final fate, we won't be able to see the rest of the universe, which gives you a really interesting philosophical question because if we were actually born as a species far in the future, we wouldn't necessarily be able to discover that we lived in an expanding universe because we wouldn't have the other galaxies to measure. That's just an interesting thought for you as time goes on even that super galaxy the stars will die most of the things will fall into the supermassive black hole that's at the center of our galaxy eventually that black hole will evaporate and will left be left with radiation and particles left out over from that that's still separated from all of the residual radiation and things that come that have come from the other galaxies elsewhere that's the fate of the universe as we know it at the moment but we always have to Given the fact that we don't have a quantum theory of gravity, we know that there are things about the universe that we still don't understand. It might be that something else could happen. There could the vacuum energy, if it's the cause of this acceleration, could actually undergo a change of some sort, like a phase change. You decrease the density of something; it will go. It might change phase, say between water and a gas. So, like like water and steam. Maybe something like that, a phase change, will happen to the vacuum as the universe expands, and the, but we don't know. So that's still its impossible to perfectly predict the future, but most likely big freeze.
0: And that's part of the excitement of science. If we mm-hmm. knew all the answers, we'd just stop. Yeah. So you've had all of this success in astrophysics, but I hear you're also a keen sportsperson. You referred to it earlier. Is it true you recently bought home a medal from the world championship in ultimate frisbee?
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, that is true. I, um, I, I've enjoyed sport all of my life, and it's. I think it's actually been quite an important part of my success in astrophysics. Actually, because the, you get to you learn a lot of skills playing sport that you don't necessarily learn through academia, and and things like even just speaking in public or organising a budget. Or running a a team of researchers. These are all skills that I learned first in sport and then was able to transfer to what I do in astrophysics. I used to do um, gymnastics, as I said, I played, I did swimming and water polo, I was in the surf club. Um, I did a lot of skiing, but my latest sport has been ultimate frisbee and I've been playing for Australia for a long time now since actually 2000 was the first time I played for Australia. These days I play in the, the Masters Division, but we just came home from World Beach Championships and we um, brought home a bronze medal and the Spirit Prize, which is the um, it's a self-refereed sport. And so it's really exciting for, to win Spirit. Spirit's the prize that's given by the all of the teams voting on which other team did self-refereeing the best. So if you're um, a really competitive team that gets voted as the, the best and fairest as well, that's also a, a really good achievement. So very um, proud of that and of all, all of my girls.
0: Congratulations.
1: Well, thanks, Tamara. Now the microphone
0: is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, education, outreach, our quest for knowledge or space.
1: Science is an absolutely fantastic career. It's a great place to be. I can't sort of speak highly enough about how much I've enjoyed my career in astrophysics. If there's a challenge that I think we face it with science at the moment, there's a lot of misinformation out there at the moment. And perhaps it's the internet has given a platform to easily spread misinformation. Yep. And so I really worry about things like the fact that, it's possible for people to not understand the science of climate change. The fact that it's possible for people to distrust vaccinations, for example, these are failures of science to communicate adequately. And that's why I think outreach is a really important thing. And I appreciate people like you doing podcasts like this, because it's really important that. Everybody out there trusts science and I think that's one of the most important things that we can do as scientists is to explain what the scientific method is and make sure people understand why it's trustworthy.
0: Fantastic. It's been truly fabulous speaking with you.
1: Thanks so much, Brendan. It's been great speaking to you.
0: That was Dr Tamara Davis, a very highly cited astrophysicist with thousands of citations. Her contributions include testing advanced theories of gravity, measuring time dilation of distant supernovae, using galaxies to measure the mass of the lightest massive particle in nature, the neutrino, and discovering that active galaxies fueled by black holes can be used as standard candles. You can follow at Tamara Astro, that's T-A-M-A-R-A-S-T-R-O, on Twitter, And check out some of her amazing research on the University of Queensland website at tinyearl.com forward slash Tamara Davis. That's all lowercase, all one word. So let's cross to Adelaide now to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? You're in very good. Thank you. Great to be speaking with you again, and also great to see that your youngest son is successfully riding his bicycle.
2: Yes, I mean that might seem somewhat unexciting to most people, but Andy has balance issues and has not been able to get on a bicycle at the time when most people are learning. So at the age of 13, when most other people have well and truly bicycle riding, he's done his first bicycle ride, so managed to take that skill that he learned on school camp and is now riding around with his mate from up the road. So that's a, a really big step forward for you.
0: Fantastic, Ian. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the night sky? Jupiter, which has been gracing our
2: skies for many, many months, Is finally now disappeared in the twilight and is rounding the sun as we speak. Venus is still above the horizon and is possible to see in the very uh, late twilight, only because it's so bright But you uh, basically need a flat level horizon like the desert or an ocean to be able to see it uh, very, very shortly before sunrise. So we're left with only a few objects in the sky. But one of those objects is Mercury. Named after the fleet messenger of the gods, Mercury is putting on a bit of a show at the moment. It's still a bit down in the twilight, but it's now relatively easy to see if you start looking 30 minutes after sunset. It's now high enough that it is still above the horizon about an hour after sunset, although you will need a fairly level horizon for that. Now, Mercury is at its very good apparition for us in the Southern Hemisphere at the moment, in the Northern Hemisphere, not so good, I'm sorry. But in the Southern Hemisphere, we're going to see Mercury quite high above the horizon into relatively dark skies, and it's going to meet up with some very interesting objects. So keep on watching Mercury over the coming weeks. On November the 7th, Mercury is climbing towards the head of the Scorpion and will be very close to the star Delta Scorpii on the 7th. So if you start watching now from about half an hour after sunset to maybe uh, three-quarters of an hour after sunset, you'll be able to see the head of the scorpion quite easily and you'll see uh, Mercury heading towards the bright star in the centre of the head and on the 7th they'll be very, very close together. And then that will pass, it'll still be uh, close, but it'll pass on the other side, heading towards an encounter I'll talk about for our next Podcast where it's coming close to Antares. So, Mercury is putting on a quite nice show and it's in a very uh, good position for us in the southern hemisphere. Northern hemisphere, it never really gets too high above the horizon, but it's still worth it if you've got a, a, a level horizon to watch Mercury as it will be a passing very close to some interesting objects. Saturn is still reasonably high above the horizon, still just above the rifts of the Milky Way but it's getting closer and closer to the horizon. So the window where you can get good telescopic views of the ringed world is getting narrower and narrower. It's still nice to look at. Finding Saturn is relatively easy. You just have to look for the upside-down question mark of Scorpius the Scorpion. And if you look up from the bright red star Antares, the next brightest object you come to, which is a golden yellow colour, is Saturn. So, while you only have a very narrow window of time to get good telescopic views before the heat haze from the horizon turns Saturn into a uh, a roiling blob, it's still looking very nice to the unaided eye.
0: Very good, Ian. And what about for those people that are silly enough to get up early in the morning?
2: Well, for those of you who are silly enough to get up early in the morning, uh, Mars is becoming more and more visible. Again, Mars is fairly low in the twilight, and you have to start looking around about half an hour before sunrise. But now Mars should be bright enough to be able to see with the unaided eye. You don't have to really hunt around with a telescope. Venus is still above the horizon too, but it's very, very, very low. It's just about just scraping the horizon at the moment. So uh,
0: That's just before it gets washed out by the rising sun.
2: That's just before it gets washed out by the rising sun. So if you've got, if you, again, if you've got a clear level of horizon like uh, an ocean or the desert and no big trees or anything, you'll be able to see Venus just above the horizon shortly before sunrise because it's so bright. But Mars is quite reasonably obvious above the horizon. If you start looking half an hour before sunrise, that's in the east in the morning sky.
0: Very good, Ian. And do you have a tangent for us this week? Well, my tangent this week is taken from the fact
2: that it's going to be Halloween soon, All Hallows Eve. Although this podcast will go out after uh, All Hallows Eve is over, I thought it appropriate to mention uh, not one but two spooky things that would be of interest to our listeners. The first is the spooky exoplanets of the Star Leash Now, Leash is a pulsar that goes by the name of PSR B1257 plus 12, and it's the star that was the very first to have exoplanets found around it. The very first exoplanets that we found were not around an ordinary star like the Sun or even a a cool dwarf star, but around a pulsar, a pale, burned-out star. The pulsar has three planets named Dragoa, Poltergeist, and Phototor. And what we think happened is that the pulsar is a result of the collision of two white dwarf stars and that material that was left over from the collision then formed planets. That The planets are not the original planets of the system, but they're planets left over that were formed out of the debris of the collision between the two white dwarfs that formed this pulsar. So, 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 you have a, in a sense, a star that has arisen from the dead, the pulsar has come from the two colliding white dwarfs, and the, the planets have come from the debris of the death of the white dwarfs. Everyone will be quite familiar with the, the concept of the poltergeist, uh, whereas the other star names come from various other mythologies. Uh, in fact, it was, uh, the, the names for these, these planets were, came from a competition uh, set up by the International Astronomical Union. And, for example, Poltergeist is a star. That, it's a planet that's intermediate between the size of Earth and Neptune. And uh, everyone knows that Poltergeist is a haunting spirit. Dragoa is a, a zombie-like creature that turns up in North Mistology, and that's actually one of the smallest uh, exoplanets we know. It's about the size of Earth's moon, and we only can pick it up because the time, the pulsar timing is so sensitive to the totals of the mass of its planets that we can pick up something so small. Most of the other exoplanets we know are relatively large because it's the only way we can pick them up by either the transiting across the face of the star and dimming their light or by the tugs on the, on the uh, star uh, altering uh, their Doppler characteristics. And we've needed the planets to be relatively large to see this. But because the pulsar timing is so, so precise, and amazingly precise, the tiny totals of this uh, moon-sized exoplanet is enough to disturb the timing that we can uh, work out how it is, where it is, and how and uh, how big it is. And uh, Pobotor is the deity of nightmares in Greek pathology. So uh, I think that's a suitably spooky astronomical tangent for the upcoming All Hallows Eve. But I'd like to close with one more. If there's one spooky event is, is not enough, let's have two. And the second spooky event is a zombie asteroid, which maybe or possibly a zombie comet. Uh, I, I don't know if people have been listening to the news. There's so much news going on at the moment. But we found what may be the, the first well verified interstellar object entering the solar system. And we initially thought this was a comet. Uh, now the reasons we think that this object is in, of interstellar origin is it's very close to the solar apex. The solar apex is the direction of travel of the sun of the sun and solar system through the to the galaxy. Yep. So it's basically coming uh, at us from uh, our direction of travel, very much like a raindrop headfirst towards us uh, towards our windshield as we drive through the rain. Yep. The second is the speed this thing is travelling. Far faster than the what um, they needed to escape the uh, sun's gravity. So it's travelling extremely fast, far faster than would be necessary to be caught by gravity. And secondly, it's in a thirdly, it's in a hyperbolic orbit, and that orbit means that it does not originate, as far as we can tell, within the solar system, not even in the dim reaches of the Oort cloud. So the the orbit speed and the direction it's coming from uh, all come together to make it, suggest that this is an object from outside the solar system now it's possible that it could be something that has been a Oort system object that has been perturbed by the hypothetical um, planet nine but for that to happen and to have the char- orbital characteristics it does and the speed it does it would require a large number of very unlikely coincidences now, why do I say it's probably a zombie comet <laughs> to fit in with the Halloween thing? We know that it's not an active comet because it's been looked at by, by some uh, very grunty telescopes, and no coma or tail has been seen. I should point out that this was first discovered after it had just screamed past the Sun inside the orbit of Mercury, and now, if you're uh, uh, an object with a lot of volatiles in it we should be still seeing dust and gas boiling off as a result of this close approach, even though it was very fast. We've got, now got a good spectrum of the object, and it's very red. And so it's looking uh, very much like a, a, a Kuiper Belt object, So, which suggests that it was once a, an icy object like the objects out in the Kuiper Belt and has now been deprived of its volatiles. And so hence, the, it's not a rocket. think it's unlikely to be a rocky asteroid because of it's colour. So it has to be something like a depleted bit uh, belt object. And the red colour is from the uh, layer of, of uh, organic uh, chemicals, most like islands that come from the uh, volatiles being converted into organic chemicals by ultraviolet light. So what's likely happened is that some other solar systems coordinate belt Objects have become depleted of volatile levels, They're possibly ejected by close interactions with a uh, a massive uh, uh, planet like Jupiter, uh, sped through the the uh, cold of space, and being captured by us. So there you go. For in, in honour of upcoming Halloween, we have a, a spooky uh, extrasolar solar system and a zombie uh, a zombie comet
0: from the space. Fantastic, Ian, thank you. I've seen some images of that and there's been quite a few telescopes pointed in that direction. For people that would like to grab an image and have a look at that object that may be coming from interstellar space, what search terms would they use to find that image?
2: Search on A slash 2017 U1 or a uh, slash 2017 space
0: U1. Thank you, Ian. Okay, yep. well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again, and
2: it's been fantastic speaking with you too,
0: Brendan. And now, the Astrophys News Roundup for Thursday the 2nd of November 2017. Our feature news item today is a follow-up from the gravitational wave multi-messenger news we brought you last episode, and is adapted from a report by Joshua Sokol for Quantum Magazine. Neutron stars, squishy or solid? Physicists have spent decades debating whether or not neutron stars contain new forms of matter, created when the stars break down the familiar world of protons and neutrons into new interactions between quarks or other exotic particles. In addition to watching for collisions using LIGO, astrophysicists have been busy developing creative ways to probe neutron stars from the outside. The challenge is then to infer something about the hidden layers within, but this LIGO signal and those like it, emitted as two neutron stars pirouette around their centre of mass, pull on each other like taffy and finally smash together, offers a whole new handle on the problem. Strange matter. A neutron star is the compressed core of a massive star. The super-dense cinders, left over after a supernova. It has the mass of a sun, but squeezed into a space the width of a city. As such, neutron stars are the densest reservoirs of matter in the universe, the last stuff on the line before a black hole. To drill into one would bring us to the edge of modern physics, a centimetre or two of normal atoms, iron and silicon mostly, encrusts the surface. Then, the atoms squeeze so close together that they lose their electrons, which fall into a shared sea. Deeper, the protons inside nuclei start turning into neutrons, which cluster so close together that they start to overlap. But theorists argue that what happens further in when densities creep past two or three times higher than the density of a normal atomic nucleus. From the perspective of nuclear physics, neutron stars could just be protons and neutrons, collectively called nucleons, all the way in. Some astrophysicists suspect otherwise. They point out that nucleons aren't elementary particles, They're made up of three quarks, and under immense pressure, these quarks might form a new state of quark matter. Other theorists have long speculated that layers of other weird particles might arise inside a neutron star. As neutrons are jostled closer together, all that extra energy might go into creating heavier particles That contain not just the up and down quarks that exclusively make up protons and neutrons, but heavier and more exotic strange quarks. For example, neutrons might be replaced by hyperons, three quark particles that include at least one strange quark. Laboratory experiments can make hyperons, but they vanish almost immediately. Deep inside neutron stars, however, they might be stable for millions of years. For decades, though, this field has been stuck. Theorists invent ideas about what might be going on inside neutron stars, but that environment is so extreme and unfamiliar that even CERN and other collider experiments here on Earth can't reach the right conditions. So, squishy or hard, We still don't know the answer to one of our most puzzling questions, but multi-messenger astronomy observations of neutron star mergers may provide some pathways to the answer and, of course, raise many more puzzling questions for theoreticians and observers to work through. That's what science is. See you in two weeks
1: ready oh